Well, as we come to this chapter, some of you are probably thinking, Palm Sunday, that's supposed to be a time where we're rejoicing and shouting Hosanna and looking at Lord's entering into Jerusalem and all of those wonderful things attendant with Palm Sunday. Why in the world is pastor talking about the lake of fire on Palm Sunday? Well, as I looked at this passage of Scripture, I started thinking, what was Palm Sunday really about? It was a recognition of the king. Now, they were misguided. They had a misconception about what that would look like. They were really thinking more about what Revelation chapter 20 describes as far as the literal reign of the Messiah here on planet Earth. But what they didn't recognize was there was going to be a crucifixion, resurrection, and a church age that would take place in between. What we find in the book of Revelation chapter 20 is really the closing chapter for the wicked. It's a time where the Word of God shares with us the victory of Jesus Christ and His followers. So really, while on Palm Sunday, people cried out, Hosanna, save us, this is where that salvation takes place, but it's also a time that describes for us the final chapter for the wicked. You see, after these events described in Revelation chapter 20, the wicked will have no more influence on God's creation. They will be consigned to a place of judgment, but the righteous will flourish. So let's dive into this passage of Scripture, and what I want to do first is go back to the first three verses. Now, I realize we covered verses 1 through 3 last week as we were talking about some of the events that would happen when Christ returns and how His enemies would be dealt with at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, chapter 19 describes for us the return of the Messiah, and we see Him return on a white horse, and we see with just the word from His mouth, judge an insurrection by sinful men who would seek to displace Him as King. We also see Jesus Christ returning with His church and with those who are resurrected, and we see them come to earth in force with Jesus. Now, as we come to chapter 20, we find the rest of the story when it comes to Christ's reign on earth, and it begins with a change in world order. From the fall of man all the way to the return of Christ, the wicked have been in charge. Now, God ultimately is in control but wickedness has had a prominent place in this world from the fall of man to the return of Christ. God has given it some degree of latitude, and they've taken full advantage of that, haven't they? They've made sinful, wicked choices. They've behaved extremely wickedly, but that has been changed. Look at the first three verses, and we're going to see one of the greatest changes to world order. 
and that is the confinement of Satan to the abyss for a thousand years. Look again at this first verse, Revelation chapter 20, and it says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, what we see first as we dive into this part of the passage is the control of God and really the impotence of Satan. Some people have the misconception, as we brought out last week, that there's sort of a Uh, an even-handed distribution of good and bad, light and dark, all all of those things are are pretty much, uh, it could go either way. What the Scripture really teaches us is this, God is in control, God has all the power, Satan is only able to do the things that God gives him an allowance for a time to do, but that will come to a conclusion, that will come to an end. When Christ returns, this passage of Scripture drives home the fact that an angel comes and grabs Satan, lays hands on him, and casts him into the abyss for a thousand years. It doesn't even take God to take Satan and incarcerate him. Why? Because Satan was created an angel, but he turned away from God in rebellion And another angel is able to take him and cast him into the abyss. When it's described as a place with chains, notice it says the angel holding in his hand a key, and by the way, key demonstrates authority, the ability to open up, the authority given by God to take Satan and place him into the abyss, and then also that it is a bottomless pit with a great chain. In other words, this is a place that will bind Satan for a thousand years. Now, I want you to use your sanctified imagination for just a moment and think about a world without the tempting of Satan. Imagine what that world would be like. Man does a perfectly good job of sinning himself because of the old nature, but when we have Satan tempting partnering with our old nature, our world has seen the results of such evil, such terrible wickedness. When Jesus Christ is on the throne as king, Satan will be a non-factor. He will not be in this world tempting people anymore. Look at verse 2, how this is described. He seized the dragon. Now, Through our study in the book of Revelation, the dragon had a great deal of power in the old world order, didn't he? He was basically controlling the beast and the false prophet. He was rising up people against God. Now he is seized, and notice he's described further as the ancient serpent. This goes back to what? The Garden of Eden. So, from the fall of man to the return of Christ, here is Satan. I find it interesting that the word that Revelation uses primarily, dragon, and then the word that Genesis uses, the ancient serpent, are there together, describing the duration of his reign. And then it goes on to say he is the devil and Satan, and he is bound for a thousand years. He was taken and he was thrown into the pit and it will be shut up and sealed over him so that he might no longer deceive the nations. Wow. This is the fate 
of Satan, revealed in Scripture, guaranteed by the power of God. But what we've seen in the old world order is something quite different. Not Satan bound, but Satan unbound. We found that Satan is described in the Word of God as one who has power over this world system. Notice John, the same author of Revelation, writes, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what we see in our current world system is a world that is moved and encouraged and directed by Satan himself. But what we also see in the Word of God is that Satan was defeated well before his incarceration in the abyss. Look at what John writes here. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In other words, when you habitually sin, you're joining Satan's team. You're behaving like the one who rebels, Satan. But then it goes on to say this, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then look at this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Ultimately, the works of the devil will be completely destroyed. But for a thousand years during the reign of Christ... Satan will be bound. He will be restricted. He will not be able to do anything in the way of stirring people up, in the way of encouraging people towards sin. Now, we're going to see in this text that that's not the end of Satan. Satan is going to have one more mini-run, but for a thousand years during the reign of Christ, he is bound. Look at the last part of the third verse, and we have a foreshadowing of what's going to be addressed a little bit later in the chapter. You see, it says that he is incarcerated or bound for a thousand years, but when the thousand years ended, it says, after that, he must be released for a little while. We're going to see more about that later in the book of Revelation chapter 20. But that brings us to our next point, this change in world order. Satan, all of the wickedness that he has perpetuated That's bound. All of the followers have been killed. The world gets a reboot, if you will, with Jesus Christ as king. But Jesus Christ is king along with those of us who are followers of Christ joining in his inheritance. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones... Now, understand, Jesus Christ is on the throne in Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But I want you to look at this fourth verse because there are a plurality of thrones. Thrones meaning authority. And look at what the text goes on to say. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, What we're picturing here is God taking his followers and giving them areas of responsibility. I think the word judge even goes back to the idea of the book of Judges where there were various people raised up to be leaders of their community under the authority of God. And I think that's what's going to be instituted with Christ as the King of kings, Lord of lords. But those of us who have trusted Christ, who have been faithful having been resurrected at the rapture, will join with Christ in reigning. Now, why? Why would God take resurrected, sinless leaders 
and put them into place. Think about this for a moment. When you look at the track record of man and the track record of authorities and government, think of the corruption, the seduction that power has brought in leading to that corruption, the sin of so many leaders. Throughout Scripture, you could see godly men being corrupted by being leaders. People who start out well, then falling to the seduction of power and money and authority. What God does to fix that problem, if you will, during the millennium is replace human bureaucracy with fallen leaders and in place he puts resurrected sinless followers to lead in the various communities around the world. Problem solved. Think of our world. Think of what could be done without corruption, without sinful leaders who look to themselves and their own enhancement rather than seeking to serve and minister and care for and show grace and love and, yes, call out wickedness by not being wicked themselves. This is what we have to look forward to during the reign of Christ. So not only do you have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on the throne, but you have these other thrones occupied by those that Christ will select to lead in His new world order. The world that is guided by righteousness and not by sin. That's what we have to look forward to according to the Word of God right here revealed in this passage. Look at what else we see. Also, so in addition to those that he commits this authority to, verse 4, he says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. In addition to the resurrected church which returns with Christ, there is a resurrection, if you will, of those who have died during the tribulation. And they return with Christ. And in a faster turnabout for them, only seven years of tribulation, some of them dying right at the end of the tribulation, isn't it amazing that they go from one who is martyred to sitting on a throne? Because they are followers of Jesus Christ. God will demonstrate His victory. And He will place them over the world that had just recently slaughtered them. Because in Jesus Christ, they have the victory. Look at what it says. It says, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This reign of Christ on earth is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something we celebrate in a week. But Jesus' resurrection is just the first fruits of many who are resurrected to live and serve and lead alongside Christ. Look at verse 5. Now, verse 5 goes on to point something out. The rest of the dead 
did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Listen, the book of Revelation chapter 20 describes two resurrections. There is the resurrection to life, and that's what this passage is talking about right here that we're in right now. But then there is a second resurrection, and that is a resurrection to death. We're going to see the comparison contrast between this. But understand what the Word of God is teaching us is there is the hope of our resurrection, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, I get to enjoy that resurrection with Him, reigning for a thousand years. Look at verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20 is one of the clearest passages that we find in all of Scripture to describe the duration of Christ's reign. Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords now. But what the Bible describes throughout the Old Testament and now in the book of Revelation is the bodily return of Jesus Christ only possible because of the resurrection. And when Christ returns bodily to establish His kingdom on earth, what He's doing is, number one, fulfilling the promise of God throughout the Old Testament. But number two, he is demonstrating what it is to be the perfect God-man reigning, leading, being king of this world, crushing evil, lifting up God, showing the grace and the truth of God in his physical presence, unrestricted able to be the king of kings on a level where we can see him as king of kings and lord of lords. But then we come to the next part of this passage. When we come to verses 7 through 9, we see the rest of the story when it comes to Satan. And what we find is there will be one final challenge to God's authority. You know, th this part of the passage just blows my mind. You look at how messed up the world is, and you wonder how in the world can people turn against God one more time, even with Satan released? How is this possible? Well, here's something we need to understand. In the millennium, there is not only Christ who returns and the church and the resurrected tribulation saints, and even the Old Testament saints, they're resurrected, they come into the kingdom, they're serving in the kingdom. But there are those who will be survivors of the tribulation, who still have a sin nature, who still are able to be tempted and they will come into the millennium. And that generation will be believers. But you know what we see so often in Scripture? 
where there is one generation of believers, subsequent generations forget. They choose to not embrace the same truths, the same faith as their parents. So for a thousand years, there will be generation after generation after generation. And think of how the population of the earth can increase in a thousand years when there is no sin, no sickness, booming economy, right? Enough food for everyone. All of these things will be in place during the reign of Christ. And for that thousand years, there is generation after generation. You know, if you figure that at 20 years of age, people start having kids on average, and those kids have kids, and those kids have kids, you you can see the multiplication. It'll put rabbits to shame, right? (laughs) So that's that's the idea. You know, that's the picture of what we'll see. And what happens is this. During that time, as people move more toward their sin nature, not even tempted by Satan, but just by their own sin nature, at the conclusion of this, Satan will be released. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, this is the part that I find disturbing as I look at this passage of Scripture. Multitudes of people have been under the reign of Christ and righteousness and good and been blessed by it. Prosperity is everywhere. Satan is released. And by the way, we are not told God's purpose in releasing Satan. We can speculate, but we don't know. God releases Satan one more time for his good purpose. And what happens? He goes out and he deceives the nations. Now, let me point this out to you. Satan can only deceive willing participants. If you are dead set on following God, you will resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? But if you are pursuing your own selfishness and you kind of like the idea of rebelling against God anyway, it doesn't take much suggestion or deceit from Satan to move you in a direction toward greater rebellion. This is what will take place at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And what it says is that this will happen in the four corners of the earth. In other words, in every direction, Satan is going to, for a little while, raise up people in rebellion toward God. Now, how long is a little while? I don't know. That can be a very relative term in Scripture, can't it? (laughs) God's measurement of time is different than Rob Wheeler's measurement of time. But what we do know is this, this will be an insurrection, a rebellion against God. And then look at the eighth verse, and it mentions a couple of places that are unfamiliar to us probably, Gog and Magog. Now, there have been so many studies and so many opinions about who Gog and Magog are. As a matter of fact, people do 
linguistic hijinks to come up with trying to identify current players with Gog and Magog. Can I just say this? You've had a tribulation that has totally changed the world order. Nations that may be powerful now, after seven years of tribulation and then being completely wiped out at the return of Christ, they will no longer be players, right? You have a thousand years of the reign of Christ. Think of how our world has changed in a thousand years. The kingdoms that have raised and fallen over a thousand years. If you ask somebody a thousand years ago who's going to be the most powerful nation, they would have a much different answer than people today. So there's no way of knowing who Gog and Magog are. Here's what we do know. They are going to gather together and their number is going to be like the sand of the sea. And then look at verse 9. And they marched up and over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Now, 1,000 years prior was the Battle of Armageddon. It wasn't even a contest, right? They gather, they go against Jerusalem. Jesus Christ returns. The sword that came out of his mouth devastated them in a moment. Let's see what happens on this go-round. It says that they gathered against the beloved city, comma, and that's about how long it takes, a comma, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This will be the end of man's rebellion toward God. It is completely done. No more. Never again will man rebel against God. Let that sink in for a moment. All we have known from man's history, from Eden until the battle of Gog and Magog, is rebellion against God. It is done. Then, this is the part I really like, this will be the completion of Satan's judgment. Now, he was partially judged by putting him into the abyss for a thousand years. That was a taste. But look at what we find in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And look at this. They will be tormented day and night forever. Now, we see some important truths about what Satan is going to experience and what the lake of fire is. Satan is going to experience a conscious judgment where for eternity he must live with the judgment and wrath of God, tormenting him day and night forever. That's the description of what he's going to experience. And let me take a sidebar for just a moment. Some people have a really distorted view of Satan's place in hell. A lot of times people think in terms of Satan being the king of hell. And what they've done is they've taken Greek mythology and Hades and they've conflated it with Satan 
and the lake of fire. And they think in terms of Satan sort of assigning people their torture. You used to see that a lot in the cartoons, right? Tom or Jerry die. (laughs) They go to this fiery place with a guy with a pointed tail and pitchfork, and he sort of teases them and gives them an area of responsibility. That is horrible theology. What we need to remember is Satan isn't the king of hell. He is the king of squat. He is imprisoned in hell, tormented day and night with all of the fallen angels, with the beast and the false prophet. All of them are consigned to the lake of fire. And he is as much a prisoner of hell as any other prisoner. No authority. Part of what takes place in hell is the loneliness and regret. I've heard people say, I want to go to hell because all my friends are going there. Ever heard someone say that ridiculous statement? Listen, that's not what's described in the Word of God. There is not a great fellowship in hell. They do not drink fire water in hell, right? It's a place of judgment, the wrath of God. Satan and the false prophet will experience it. And Jesus made this statement about hell. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared. Now, for whom? For the devil and for his angels. So, what I believe happened is, when Satan and the angels rebelled against God, God designed hell for their punishment as an eternal punishment. This is a part of the purpose and the plan of God. Then we come to the part of this passage that should break our hearts. It is the great white throne judgment of God. In the great white throne judgment, there is a description not of Satan and the beast and the false prophet. There is a description of those who will join them. And they are those who have never been declared righteous by a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, as I preach this, I take no joy in sharing the outcome of the wicked. Sometimes as Christians, when we talk about the doctrine of hell, we can almost come off with this idea like, yeah, they deserve that. Listen, we all deserve it. But God, by His grace, opened a way for us to be forgiven and to enter into a relationship with our God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. As a matter of fact, when the Bible describes those who will come before God Almighty and be judged, we see an insight in Peter's letter where even God desires that people not experience this. He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now look at this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the heart of God. 
But for those who have not come through the Lord Jesus Christ, what the Scripture shares with us is this. There are going to be many, and I would even say most, who have lived in this world from the fall until this conclusion will be going to the lake of fire. Look at what the Scripture says, starting at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now this white throne, the white throughout Revelation has demonstrated righteousness and purity. And we know that there is one who is seated on this throne, and I would submit to you that the one seated on that throne is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, the Scripture says this, For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus Christ will be judging on the great white throne because God has given Him the authority to do so. But then we come to the part of this passage that is very difficult to read, but it is the truth of God. Listen, there are many who shy away from the doctrine of hell. They look at it and they say, I don't want to be guilty of hellfire and brimstone. But listen, we talk about the truths of God, and I never want to become a judge of God's revelation and truth. I share what God says, and we all should. So let's look at what it says after it describes the one who is seated on this white throne. Verse 11, from the presence or from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I'm not sure exactly what all that means, but it's stark. You look at it and you see no place to hide no place to go. This is the final reckoning where sin is going to be dealt with. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. So here before this judgment seat where Christ is on this white throne, Nobody escapes. In our culture, what do we see? You have enough money, you have enough power, you have enough influence, and you get away with it. Pay the right people, get the right press agent, and you can beat it more often than not, right? Not so. Both the great and the small will be standing before God. And listen, this isn't a judgment that is made emotionally. It takes our lives and it shares the record. Because it says here that the books were opened. Every sin that we've committed, every word that we've uttered, if we do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
will be brought into account and we will stand before God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ and have to answer for what we've done. It says that another book was opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, twice in this passage, it's mentioned that people are judged according to what they have done. Listen, there's a misconception that if my bad deeds are outweighed by my good deeds, that I can do enough to be acceptable to God. This is not what the Scripture teaches. The standard for being righteous enough to go into God's heaven is perfect righteousness. One sin cancels out the good deeds that we've done. And here's the tragedy. If somebody wants to come and attempt to get into heaven on their own merit, they can try it. But you will be judged by the things that you've done. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to be judged by the things I've done. I am thankful that I can be judged by what Christ did when He died on the cross. You see, it's either what I've done or what Christ did. And when Christ accepted my penalty by going to the cross, bearing my sin, paying for all of my sin, that opened the way for me to miss what is described in this passage. Jesus Christ delivers us from condemnation. When we believe in Him, we do not face the terrible thing that is described here in this passage. And it is a terrible thing. Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Twice in this passage, they were judged according to what they were done. Now, what does this mean when it talks about the sea and Hades and death giving up their dead? Little theology about what happens to people when they die. When a person does not have the forgiveness of God based on faith and the re revelation that God has given them to this point. Throughout the Old Testament, people couldn't look to Jesus. They had to look to the truth that God had revealed to them to that point. And when they believed God, it was credited to them as righteousness, right? They, when they die, go into the presence of God, but it's a place called paradise, Throughout the Old Testament, before the cross of Christ, believers were in paradise, Abraham's bosom in the presence of God. What about those who did not have faith in God? They went to a place called Hades. Think of Hades as a holding place where they are held until sentencing, okay? When a person commits a crime in Cook County, they go to the Cook County Jail, and they hang out there until their trial. And then when there's the trial and the sentencing, they go to prison. Right? That's the idea. This is what happens with Hades. Hades is that holding place until they are sentenced and the final judgment, the lake of fire, is given. 
Now, for us as believers, when we have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are absent from the body, present from, with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The moment that we die, we go into the presence of God. For those Old Testament saints, paradise was brought into the presence of God by the power of Christ and His resurrection. So that is a quick blow-by. What this is saying is, though, all of those who have been on hold from the time of their death until the day that they face the judge, they are being held in Hades. And Hades, as it's described in the Scripture, is no picnic. But it is not quite the lake of fire either. This is what Scripture describes for us. For the unbelieving, this is their outcome. They will be judged by what they have done. Finally, look at the last part of this. And this is the conviction and sentencing to the lake of fire. For those who do not come to God through Jesus Christ, this is what awaits then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you notice how many times lake of fire is repeated in Revelation chapter 20? Again and again and again, it is a warning. You see, we either find Jesus as Savior, or we face Him as judge. At some point, everyone will recognize who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church of Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here's the thing. Timing is everything. Acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord before you die and you find Him as Savior. You return with Him in glory. You reign with Him on earth. You spend eternity with Him because of your faith in His work. Find Him as Savior, and that's what we have to look forward to. But face Him as judge, and there is the lake of fire. Why does the Bible include this? I think there are a host of reasons but two important reasons. Number one, it's a warning. To those who reject Jesus Christ, this is a stark warning. How cruel would it be to let someone face an outcome that they are not warned about? God warns us clearly in His Word. Now, you can heed the warning or you can reject the warning, but that has no bearing on the truth and the outcome of the warning. We have all seen people who have been warned of a danger. Nah! They go into the danger and they are dead. Many dying horrible deaths, right? 
God warns us about the outcome of rejecting Him. And it's right here in this passage. But number two, I think this is for the church. There are people all around us who are headed for the lake of fire. And we don't care. We overlook it. We say, oh, it's too bad. We need to take stock of this passage. And we need to pray for those around us that we know do not know Jesus and are on a crash course with the great white throne judgment. The lake of fire should break our hearts and motivate us to take that risk of breaking a relationship, of doing whatever we need to do in order to save people from this terrible outcome through the power and truth of Jesus Christ. If I saw my kid getting ready to run into traffic when they were little, I didn't worry about offending them by saying, stop, and then running after them and snatching them up and carrying them away. They could be mad at me for a little bit. I don't care. The horrible outcome was way worse than that momentary frustration that they would experience. We need to take that long view when it comes to the people around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is sobering. And I pray that you will let us be mindful of these truths, these things. May we be faithful to share the gospel because there is a lost world around us on a collision course with the lake of fire. Break our hearts. Give us a passion for the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.